tonight, I want to process with you a story from Luke chapter 8. So if you have your paper Bibles, you can turn there. If you've got your devices, I'll be in the CSB so you can meet me there. But I want to process with you a story from Luke chapter 8 that I told Sissy I, I can't get away from it. I actually tried to move on and want, preferred to speak on something else, but I have been um, singularly focused on understanding what's going on in this passage. And I'm not quite sure I'm there. I think I need more time with it, and maybe you and I can talk to each other after, and we can process this even more. I'm not sure I've arrived where I'm supposed to be. But what we're going to see in this story story tonight is that you can go home. You can go home. I know it's very simple, but this is what the Holy Spirit keeps on repeat for me in the last 10 days as I've been reflecting on this story in Luke. You can go home. You can go back to where you live life. And I think many of us feel displaced from that, whether it's our theological home, our church home, maybe we weren't raised in a safe home, maybe the new position we're in at work doesn't feel like I'm at home yet. But you get to go home. And you get to go home because Jesus makes a way for you to do that. So we're going to see that in the story tonight. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Let's start in verse 26. And I want to preface with this. I think this message is for all of us because God's providence orchestrates things like that. That we would end the summer together in this passage. He must have known it. But I think the message is especially for those of us that feel like the mountaintop was great. The valleys, not so much. Please, it's time to go home. And not our ultimate home, but just a place where I can live life and get back to some sense of living to be alive. Because the man we're going to look at was living in tombs, and he was living among the dead. It's rather creepy. I processed this story with my 10-year-old son, and he was like, this is weird. Is this about zombies? That was his comment. So let's read it together. I'm going to start in verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into desert, deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside, or a mountain, and the demon begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran, ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, Jesus returned. And the man from whom the demons had departed begged Jesus earnestly to be with him. And Jesus sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. We should feel Mary Magdalene vibes, you know, released from demon possession. We should feel a woman at the well, evangelism sent to her town vibes in this story. We should sense a real intense exorcism just happened and that this is so odd and such a strange story to insert after Jesus had just calmed the waves and the wind. You see, Dr. Luke positions this story of this demon-possessed man who is intent, I think, on self-harm by drowning. And Jesus has literally just proved he cannot be drowned. And people with him will not be drowned. And Jesus has just been faced with this question from his disciples. Who is this guy? The wind and the waves obey him. They submit to him. This guy is powerful over anything we've ever seen. The strongest forces that seem so out of our control. Jesus has a handle on the wind and the waves. He won't be drowned. And when people are with him, they won't drown either. And then Dr. Luke positions this story about a man who has been possessed by legion, which is this military term. And some scholars think, you know, maybe this is like a a, a knock against the Romans and the empire. It could be. There are some clues, it seems like, in the original language that make it sound like Dr. Luke is trying to build a case that this is demonic warfare, that there is an oppression that's the level of a war, that there is a battle going on, and that inside of this person is a whole garrison, a whole battalion, a whole group of raging demons that have possessed him. Now, the thing about a message about demon possession is I don't know a lot about it. (laughs) I haven't been demon possessed personally or freed from it. The people I talk to that know more about this are usually from the mission field. I get very little clarity on some regularity on this kind of oppression. We have a few textbooks about it. Mostly they're not happening in our Bible church circles. I don't know about you guys. Some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters are more well-versed on these kinds of things. Additionally, I don't know a lot about brain science. I'm not super familiar with how first century Jews or Romans understood spiritual oppression. I don't know a whole lot about that either. So I thought I'd just go ahead and say that up front. I'm not a licensed professional counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I think all of these helps that we now have in our modern era are so crucial to your health, my health, mental health, physical health, to battle things like suicidal ideation and what feels like oppression. And I don't know where the line is. And so I want to be really careful with my language. And so I want to be accountable to you in that that, hey, I don't know a lot of what I'm talking about, but I do know how to process stories with you. And there are some elements in the story I don't want you to miss. So let's reread verse 26 through 29. 
It says, Then the disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time this man had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but he was in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before Jesus, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What does it mean that this man met him? This is kind of Greta Gerwig storytelling. It's like we don't know that Jesus has commanded the demons to come out before we learned that the man has met him. Right, So it's like you're kind of toggling between what we know happened. You have to keep reading to see that this man met him. What does that mean? Why did he break loose that day? Who was guarding him? Were the restraints loosened? Was he, did he have a seizure? Did he have a fit of rage? Was he intent on self-harm? Was he going there to drown himself? Was he going there to harm somebody else? Was he just there to get a drink of water? Did the people guarding him lead him there? Were they with him? I I don't know, and I so wish Dr. Luke had been a little bit more precise so we can ask him about it. But what we do know is that this man gets to that water, and he is naked. He is laid bare. The way he is embodied here on earth is so vulnerable, so precarious. Right, He has left his home. Did he leave a family? Were there people he loved? He left his furniture. He left his home. He left his city. And he's outside the city. He's at the tombs. He's he's living in the grave. There's no food there. There's no bathrooms and tombs. It's dark there. You're living among the literal dead. What possesses you to do that? And maybe that's the point of the story. It's literal possession that would drive someone away from the people and the place that they love into the place of death, does this symbolize that he wanted to die? Was it these demons getting him closer and closer to being dead, to be near? I don't, I don't know. But I know that he's at home among the dead, and he should be at home among the living. He should be living his life, and he should be able to go back home. And then we have a lot of questions about who was guarding him. Who were these people? Is this a marginalized figure who was kicked out of society because of the terror he was causing? Was he a harm to himself? Was he a harm to others? Was he terrorizing his neighbors? Did he destruct his property? I I don't know. Was he a a flight risk? I I mean, I just have so many questions. Or were the people guarding him like you and me? They were just trying to help someone, and nothing's working. Every help we've provided hasn't worked. We are now going to have to take shifts. We are going to have to guard this person. And we're going to have to restrain them. And i got to tell you, some of my personal story is loving someone who was intent on taking their life. He accomplished that, not in the suicide attempt, but in all the injuries he caused on his body. After two weeks of being in the ICU, my dad being restrained and having someone in the room with him every day. Right? Some of us know what it's like to vigilantly care or to support the nurses and doctors who vigilantly care for people who are intent on doing something they shouldn't be doing. 
What we know for sure is that these demons wanted him dead, and we serve Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, who makes a way for him to go home. I think it's interesting that the demons, when they see Jesus, they recognize his deity. They resist what they know is coming. Jesus doesn't torment people because he's good, but he does torment demons. And it seems like what potentially they are intent on is drowning this man, but not being drowned themselves, taking someone down with them. And they settle, I guess, on the pigs. This is strange. (laughs) We don't negotiate with terrorists or toddlers. I mean, what are we doing? Why are we negotiating with demons? I don't know. I don't, I really don't. I looked for answers. You know, Ben Witherington had none. Diane Cheng had none. Like Padilla had none. All the Lucan scholars came up pretty short for me on some of these questions you and I may have. But what I do know is that he had superhuman power to break loose, but not to break free. Superhuman power to break loose, but not to break free. Read with me verses 30 through 33 again. Listen how Jesus responds to this episode of oppression. What is your name? Identify yourself. You see, I won't be drowned. No one will be drowned in my presence. You're talking to the most high God. Who are you? And he answers honestly, right, that he is all of these demons, and they're begging him not to banish them to the abyss. This is another word for valley, you guys. It's Sheol. It's the place of death. It's the watery graveyard. It's all those cosmic water partings that happen in the Old Testament where they sweep people away and conquer whole armies, right? This legion of demons, this army of demons knows that if they go to the watery abyss, that's the end, and they don't want to go there unless they're going to take someone down with them. And it says in verse 32, a large herd of pigs was there. Why were they there? I don't know anything about pigs. I didn't spend any time researching it, right? How many people does it take to care of a pig? Are they going there to water? Are they like taking a walk for exercise? I don't know. But I do want to know, like, why are they on the hillside? Why does the demon see them and beg to go into them? Why does it throw them over the cliff? kind of stinks for the herds people. Is that what you call them? I don't know. The people that own the pigs? I mean, that was their livelihood. Maybe we should fill that parallel in the narrative that like while this man doesn't have a livelihood anymore and doesn't have a life anymore and is intent on death and headed towards death, the people who are alive and trying to keep him alive lose their livelihood. I I don't know. And then it says the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Then it says when the men who tended them saw what happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. (laughs) What's that report like? Oh, we just saw an exorcism of a naked dude at the lake about to harm himself or other people, and then all of our pigs are gone. This, I mean, what an intense story. Imagine being a townsperson and be like, huh? Oh, the demon-possessed guy got loose again. Wonder who was guarding him today. Wonder what got into him today. And then the people went out to see what had happened. I bet they did. I would be like, okay, I'm going to have to see this for myself. And then they came to Jesus and they found the man the demons had departed from sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And I want to talk about their response because I'm confused by it. But first, what I want to make clear is that 
incredible reversal from death to life that happens in this man's life. He is naked and then he's clothed and robed. He is completely out of control and out of his mind and then he's kneeling and learning at rabbi's feet, Jesus. Right? He's yelling and screaming and then he's quieted and peaceful. Imagine what it would be like if you were in the town on that rotation to guard him and you see this miraculous healing and their response is not me next. Their response is fear. And I don't blame them too much for it because this is such a strange story and Jesus had just calmed the wind and the waves and even the disciples were afraid of that. <laughs> so if he saves your life, you're afraid. If, he, if you're worried he won't, you're afraid. We're always afraid, aren't we? I have a nickname, and it's Scaredy Cat. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of heights and spiders and rats and, I mean, everything. Traveling. I'm afraid of what I'm doing right now. I'm afraid of public speaking. I'm afraid of my job. I'm afraid of being a parent. I'm literally afraid all the time. And we just keep doing the things we're doing because we do things afraid because we have the Holy Spirit. But I do feel some pity, uh, mercy, even resonance with the people who are just afraid. It says, meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possession man was delivered. How the demon-possessed man was delivered. I think maybe the how was important for them, that all the pigs had to die in the process. wonder if they were processing, does this mean we're going to lose all of our livestock? You know, if other people have to get free, are we all going to lose our livelihood? I don't know. The next verse in verse 37 it says, then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. And you should feel in this story, they're asking him to go to the abyss. They're asking him to get into the chaotic waters. They're asking him to put himself in the place of the pigs. They're asking him to get out of here. Get out of here. And I wonder how we would respond. I'm not really sure. But it's interesting how this demon-possessed man, which I will from now on be calling the healed man, the healed man, he starts begging Jesus earnestly to be with him. We would all do that, wouldn't we? I felt this so in my bones this week. If he had healed me, and he has from some things, all you want to do is be with him. Like, you talk about wanting your quiet times to be rich, get free. <laughs> You're like, all I want to do is spend all my time with this man who's not like any other man I've ever met. He's begging him earnestly. And I get a little frustrated that Jesus tells him to go. When you know all he wants to do is stay. And it's probably going to take this man a little while to figure out. We don't need Jesus physically present to always be with us. But that's a while in coming. He'll learn it eventually that Jesus is always with him, never left, and had experienced the tomb the way he had and would conquer it. In verse 38, when he says he begged, Jesus says, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. Now think for a moment how impossible that would feel. How would you feel if you had been guarded, restrained, caused a lot of havoc in your city, maybe harmed some people, tried to harm yourself? What's that like 
to snap out of this demonic oppression and to go home. Does that even seem possible? It wouldn't for me. I would be ashamed. I would be embarrassed. I would be super insecure. How do you start conversations? Hey, back from the dead, from the tombs. Hey, no, I, I won't harm you or myself. I've been healed. And that's the part of the story we don't get. And maybe that's where we live as Christ followers. You know, after the healing and after experiencing Jesus. And then we have to go back, go back home. And it's possible because Jesus makes a way for the homeless to have a home. And he gives them something to do in addition to going back to living his life. He says, tell all that God has done for you. Tell all that God has done for you. This is another way of Jesus being able to say two things, not only to this man, but maybe to us as well tonight. You can go home. And you can share your story. You can go home and you can share your story. I imagine that the pig people would be like, yeah, let me hear this story one more time. And I wonder, does that, are there amends that happen? Does he help? I I just, I am so curious about what happens after. All we know is this, and off he went. We should again feel those Mary Magdalene vibes. And she went. After seeing the resurrected Jesus, and he tells her, don't cling to me. I haven't departed yet. You got to go and tell my brothers. Go to the upper room. Sprint, sister. (laughs) And it says she went. And here in Luke's gospel, we should feel some of those echoes of off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him. And I, I have so much of my story I want to share. I'm not sure that that's actually relevant for tonight. It's probably more about your story. And I think for most of us, we don't have this radical experience. Maybe you haven't de- been demon-possessed. I haven't. But you do know what it's like on a, a lesser level to be impacted by the life of Jesus to go from something that may feel like a tomb, a valley, shale, an abyss, a place of death, an army of oppression against you, to a place of life, of liberty, right? Of being liberated by Jesus. And then now this commissioning that we all share because of the Great Commission, that we too are to go home and to tell our people, whoever those may be, Jesus set us free. And I sense in, maybe it's culture, maybe it's just the articles I'm reading and the algorithms are like punking me, but I am getting a lot of feeds on all the platforms that are reminding me that a lot of us feel like we can't go home. Is there a place for me there? Will there be home again? Can I live life again as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as a Bible study member? Can I attend church again? Can I go back to this leadership position? Am I ready for this? I I feel that personally, especially at work right now in the position I'm in and the different projects I'm working on. Am I ever going to feel like I'm at home again? And so I want to define it this way. Home is where you live life. Are you living life? And I want you to hear the words of Jesus paraphrased for you. You can go home and you can share your story. So when Caleb said, um, I'm ready to be home, 
And we said, gosh, buddy, we are too. We started to list all the reasons, and at top of that was Nellie, our new dog, our little puppy. And there were things like our pillows. We miss our pillows, you know. I miss my noisemaker and the air conditioning and that I'm used to at night and that the noise that it makes. And um, I miss my mom who lives with us. I missed my mom a lot. I'm not saying something when you're a grown adult and you live with your mom. I missed her a lot. I couldn't wait to get home, and neither could Caleb. Aaron started reminiscing. He's ready to get back to work. He's ready to be back at the church, ready to be in a routine, ready to be on a schedule. We're ready to not eat appetizers and desserts anymore, like to get some protein a little bit. And this sounds silly. I'm not talking about normalcy. I don't think this healed man returns to normal. I don't think there's normal after you encounter Jesus. I don't think there's normal after you've been freed. (laughs) There's like something so much better. It's storying the liberation of Jesus in your life. I don't think that's normal and never should be. But it is that like living of life that Jesus gets for us. And if he has to get out of a boat and stand between you and bad decisions or between you and demonic oppression, between you and your society, whatever is going on in your life, he will do it. He will meet you is what it says. He met him. And he will be so commanding in your life of what needs to happen for you to be free. And then he will robe you and clothe you and calm you and address you and commission you. You get to go home. You get to share your story. Praise God. Let me pray for y'all. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you the, for the intervention in this man's life and the intervention that's now available to us. God, I feel like this story is really dramatic, so it's hard for me to process But I know that these truths about your character, your intervention, your care, your healing, your liberation, you being life, that that's what we need to hear tonight. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, this message, this text would resonate with us. I'm confused about what this home is supposed to symbolize. Why is that the phrase I keep hearing? You can go home. You can share your story. God, make that real in our lives, each one of us. Show us what does that mean? What does that mean? What are you trying to tell us, Holy Spirit? And I pray also just favor and blessing upon this group of women who love you and study about you. God, that they would experience the life-giving power of you and your spirit through the Son. And I pray this to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys.